Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There is a revolution happening right now in the world of artificial intelligence. Confounding. Are we ready for it? I am rarely speechless. I don't know what to make of this. With rare access, we will show you what Google is developing and the questions they're asking themselves. On my way, I will bring an apple to you. As they begin to unveil computing power that will change every part of our world forever. I've been working on AI for decades now, and I've always believed that it's going to be the most important invention that humanity will ever make. This is one of David Byrne's first performances. It was 1975 at CBGB's, a legendary music club where the Ramones, Patti Smith, and Blondie were also just getting started. So I wanted to be very matter-of-fact. It's not like, are we having fun tonight? Yeah, there's none of that. that. How you all doing? How you all doing? New York! (laughs) I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Cecilia Vega. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We may look on our time as the moment civilization was transformed, as it was by fire, agriculture, and electricity. In 2023, we learned that a machine taught itself how to speak to humans like a peer, which is to say with creativity, truth, errors, and lies. The technology, known as a chatbot, is only one of the recent breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, machines that can teach themselves superhuman skills. In April, we explored what's coming next at Google, a leader in this new world. CEO Sundar Pichai told us AI will be as good or as evil as human nature allows. The revolution, he says, is coming faster than you know. Do you think society is prepared for what's coming? You know, there are two ways I think about it. On one hand, uh, I feel no, uh, because, you know, the pace at which we can think and adapt as societal institutions compared to the pace at which the technology is evolving there seems to be a mismatch. On the other hand, compared to any other technology, I've seen more people worried about it earlier in its life cycle. So I feel optimistic the number of people you know, who have started worrying about the implications, and hence the conversations are starting in a serious way as well. Our conversations with 50-year-old Sundar Pichai started at Google's new campus in Mountain View, California. It runs on 40% solar power and collects more water than it uses. High tech that Pachai couldn't have imagined growing up in India with no telephone at home. We were on a waiting list to get a rotary phone and for about five years. And it finally came home. I can still recall it vividly. It changed our lives. To me, it was the first moment I understood the power of what getting access to technology meant. So probably led me to be doing what I'm doing today. What he's doing since 2019 is leading both Google and its parent company, Alphabet, valued at $1.5 trillion. Worldwide, Google runs 90% of internet searches and 70% of smartphones. We're really excited about But its dominance was attacked this past February when Microsoft linked its search engine to a chatbot. In a race for AI dominance, in March, Google released its chatbot named Bard. It's really here to help you brainstorm ideas, to generate content like a speech or a blog post or an email. We were introduced to Bard by Google Vice President Sissy Shao and Senior Vice President James Manyika. Here's Bard. And the first thing we learned 
was that BARD does not look for answers on the Internet like Google Search does. So I wanted to get inspiration from some of the best speeches in the world. BARD's replies come from a self-contained program that was mostly self-taught. Our experience was unsettling. Confounding. Absolutely confounding. Bard appeared to possess the sum of human knowledge, <sighs> with microchips more than 100,000 times faster than the human brain. Summarize the we asked Bard to summarize the New Testament. It did, in five seconds and 17 words. In Latin. We asked for it in Latin. That took another four seconds. Then we played with a famous six-word short story often attributed to Hemingway. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Wow. The only prompt we gave was finish this story. In five seconds. Holy cow. The shoes were a gift from my wife, but we never had a baby. They were From the six-word prompt, Bard created a deeply human tale with characters it invented including a man whose wife could not conceive and a stranger grieving after a miscarriage and longing for closure. Uh, I am rarely speechless. I don't know what to make of this. Give me... We asked for the story, story. in verse. In five seconds, there was a poem written by a machine with breathtaking insight into the mystery of faith. Bard wrote, she knew her baby's soul would always be alive. The humanity, at superhuman speed, was a shock. How was this possible? James Menyika told us that over several months, Bard read most everything on the internet and created a model of what language looks like. Rather than search, its answers come from this language model. So, for example, if I said to you, Scott, peanut butter and? Jelly. Right. So it tries and learns to predict, okay, so peanut butter usually is followed by jelly. It tries to predict the most probable next words based on everything it's learned. Uh, so it's not going out to find stuff. It's just predicting the next word. But it doesn't feel like that. We asked Bard why it helps people, and it replied, quote, because it makes me happy. Bard, to my eye, appears to be thinking, appears to be making judgments. That's not what's happening. These no. machines are not sentient. They are not aware of themselves. They're not sentient, they're not aware of themselves. Uh, they can exhibit behaviors that look like that because keep in mind they've learned from us. We are sentient beings. We have beings that have feelings, emotions, ideas, thoughts, perspectives. We've reflected all that in books, in novels, in fiction. So when they learn from that, they build patterns from that. So it's no surprise to me that the exhibited behavior sometimes looks like Maybe there's somebody behind there. There's nobody there. These are not sentient beings. Zimbabwe-born, Oxford-educated James Manyika holds a new position at Google. His job is to think about how AI and humanity will best coexist. AI has the potential to change 
many ways in which we've thought about society, about what we're able to do, the, the problems we can solve. But AI itself will pose its own problems. Could Hemingway write a better short story? Maybe. But Bard can write a million before Hemingway could finish one. Imagine that level of automation across the economy. A lot of people can be replaced by this technology. Yes, there are some job occupations that will start to decline over time. There are also new job categories that will grow over time. But the biggest change will be the jobs that will be changed. Something like more than two-thirds will have their definitions change. Not go away, but change. Because they're now being assisted by AI and by automation. So this is a profound change which has implications for skills. How do we assist people build new skills, learn to work alongside machines, and how do these complement what people do today? This is going to impact every product across every company. And, and so that's why I think it's a, a very, very profound technology. And so we are just in early days. Every product in every company. That's right. AI will impact everything. So for example, you could be a radiologist you know, if, I, if, I, if you think about five to 10 years from now, you're gonna have an AI collaborator with you. It may triage, you come in the morning, you, let's say you have 100 things to go through, it may say these are the most serious cases you need to look at first. Or when you're looking at something, it may pop up and say you may have missed something important. Why wouldn't we, you know, why wouldn't we take advantage of a super-powered assistant to help you across everything you do? You may be a student trying to learn math or history, and you, know, you will have something helping you. We asked Pachai what jobs would be disrupted. He said knowledge workers, people like writers, accountants, architects, and ironically, software engineers. AI writes computer code, too. Today, Sundar Pichai walks a narrow line. A few employees have quit, some believing that Google's AI rollout is too slow, others too fast. There are some serious flaws. There's a return of inflation. James Manyika asked Bard about inflation. It wrote an instant essay in economics and recommended five books. But days later, we checked. None of the books is real. Bard fabricated the titles. This very human trait, error with confidence, is called in the industry hallucination. Are you getting a lot of hallucinations? Uh, yes, uh, you know, which is expected. No one in the, uh, in the field has yet solved the hallucination problems. All models uh, do have uh, this as an issue. Is it a solvable problem? It's a matter of intense debate. I think we'll make progress. To help cure hallucinations, Bard features a Google it button that leads to old-fashioned search. Google has also built safety filters into BARD to screen for things like hate speech and bias. How great a risk is the spread of disinformation? AI will challenge that in a deeper way. The scale of this problem is going to be much bigger. Bigger problems, he says, with fake news and fake images. It will be possible with AI to create uh, you know, a video easily where it could be Scott saying something or me saying something and we never said that and it could look accurate. But, you know, at a societal scale, 
you know, can cause a lot of harm. Is BARD safe for society? The way we have launched it today, uh, as an experiment in a limited way, uh, I think so. But we all have to be responsible in each step along the way. Last month, Google released an advanced version of BARD that can write software and connect to the Internet. Google says it's developing even more sophisticated AI models. You are letting this out slowly so that society can get used to it? That's one part of it. Uh, one part is also so that we get the user feedback and we can develop more robust safety layers before we build, before we deploy more capable models. Of the AI issues we talked about, the most mysterious is called emergent properties. Some AI systems are teaching themselves skills they weren't expected to have. How this happens is not well understood. For example, one Google AI program adapted on its own after it was prompted in the language of Bangladesh, which it was not trained to translate. We discovered that with very few amounts of prompting in Bengali, it can now translate all of Bengali. So now all of a sudden, we now have a research effort where we're now trying to get to a thousand languages. There is an aspect of this which we call, uh, all of us in the field, call it as a black box. You know, you don't fully understand. And you can't quite tell why it said this or why it got wrong. We have some ideas and our ability to understand this gets better over time. But that's where the state of the art is. You don't fully understand how it works and yet you've turned it loose on society? Yeah, let me put it this way. I don't think we fully understand how a human mind works either. Was it from that black box, we wondered, that Bard drew its short story that seems so disarmingly human? It talked about the pain that humans feel. It talked about redemption. How did it do all of those things if it's just trying to figure out what the next right word is? I mean, I've had these experiences uh, talking with Bard as well. There are two views of this. You know, there are a set of people who view this as, look, these are just algorithms. They're just repeating what it's seen online. Then there is the view where these algorithms are showing emergent properties to be creative, to reason, to plan, and so on, right? And, and personally, I think we need to be, uh, we need to approach this with humility. Part of the reason I think it's good that some of these technologies are getting out is so that society, you know, people like you and others can process what's happening and we begin this conversation and debate. And I think it's important to do that. When we come back, we'll take you inside Google's artificial intelligence labs where robots are learning. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. 
Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The revolution in artificial intelligence is the center of a debate ranging from those who hope it will save humanity to those who predict doom. Google lies somewhere in the optimistic middle, introducing AI in steps so that civilization can get used to it. We saw what's coming next in machine learning earlier this year at Google's AI lab in London, a company called DeepMind, where the future looks something like this. Look at that. Oh, my goodness. They've got a pretty good kick on them. Can still get a good, good game. A soccer match at DeepMind looks like fun and games, but here's the thing. Humans did not program these robots to play. They learned the game by themselves. It's coming up with these interesting different strategies, different ways to walk, different ways to block. And they're doing it. They're scoring over and over again. <laughs> this robot here. Raya Hadsel, vice president of research and robotics, showed us how engineers used motion capture technology to teach the AI program how to move like a human. But on the soccer pitch, the robots were told only that the object was to score. The self-learning program spent about two weeks testing different moves. It discarded those that didn't work, built on those that did, and created all-stars. There's another goal. <laughs> and with practice, they get better. Hansel told us that independent from the robots, the AI program plays thousands of games from which it learns and invents its own tactics. Here, you think that red player is going to grab it, but instead it just stops it, ah. hands it back, passes it back, and then goes for the goal. And the AI figured out how to do that on its That's own. That's right. That's right. And it takes a while. At first, all the players just run after the ball together like a gaggle of, uh, you know, six-year-olds the first time they're, they're, they're playing ball. Over time, what we start to see is now, ah, what's the strategy? You go after the ball, I'm coming around this way. Or we should pass, or I should block while you get to the goal. So we see all of that coordination um, emerging in the play. This is a lot of fun, but what are the practical implications of what we're seeing here? This is the type of research that can eventually lead to robots that can come out of the factories and work in other types of human environments. You know, think about mining, think about dangerous construction work um, or exploration or disaster recovery. These are Raya Hadsel is among 1,000 humans at DeepMind. The company was co-founded just 12 years ago by CEO Demis Hassabis. 
So if I think back to 2010, when we started, nobody was doing AI. There was nothing going on in industry. People used to eye roll when we talked to them, investors, about doing AI. So we couldn't, we could barely get two cents together to start off with, which is crazy if you think about now the billions being invested into AI startups. Cambridge, Harvard, MIT, Hassabis has degrees in computer science and neuroscience. His PhD is in human imagination. And imagine this, when he was 12 in his age group, he was the number two chess champion in the world. It was through games that he came to AI. I've been working on AI for, for decades now, and I've always believed that it's going to be the most important invention that humanity will ever make. Will the pace of change outstrip our ability to adapt? I don't think so. I think that we, um, you know, we're sort of an infinitely adaptable species. Um, you know, you look at today us using all of our smartphones and other devices, and we effortlessly sort of adapt to these new technologies. And this is going to be another one of those changes like that. Among the biggest changes at DeepMind was the discovery that self-learning machines can be creative. So this is a very Hasaba showed us a game-playing program that learns. It's called Alpha Zero, and it dreamed up a winning chess strategy no human had ever seen. But this is just a machine. How does it achieve creativity? It plays against itself tens, tens of millions of times, so it can explore um, parts of chess that maybe human chess players and, and, and programmers who program chess computers haven't thought about before. It never gets tired, it never gets hungry, it just plays chess all the time. Yes, it's, a, it's kind of an amazing thing to see because actually you set off Alpha Zero in the morning uh, and it starts off playing randomly. By lunchtime, you know, it's able to beat me and beat most chess players. And then by the evening, it's stronger than the world champion. You know, Demis Hassabas sold DeepMind to Google in 2014. One reason was to get his hands on this. Google has the enormous computing power that AI needs. This computing center is in Pryor, Oklahoma, but Google has 23 of these, putting it near the top in computing power in the world. This is one of two advances that make AI ascendant now. First, the sum of all human knowledge is online, and second, brute force computing that very loosely approximates the neural networks and talents of the brain. Things like uh, memory, imagination, planning, reinforcement learning. These are all things that are known about how the brain does it. And we wanted to replicate some of that uh, in our AI systems. You predict one of those. Those are some of the elements that led to DeepMind's greatest achievement so far, solving an impossible problem in biology. Proteins are building blocks of life, but... Only a tiny fraction were understood because 3D mapping of just one could take years. DeepMind created an AI program for the protein problem and set it loose. Well, it took us about four or five years to, to figure out how to build the system. It was my, probably our most complex project we've ever undertaken. But once we did that, it can solve uh, a protein structure in a matter of seconds. And actually, over the last year, we did all the 200 million proteins that are known to science. How long would it have taken using traditional methods? Well, the rule of thumb I was always told by my biologist friends is that it, it takes a whole PhD, five years, to do one protein structure experimentally. 
So if you think 200 million times five, that's a billion years of PhD time it would have taken. DeepMind made its protein database public, a gift to humanity, Hassabis called it. How has it been used? It's been used in uh, an enormously broad number of ways, actually, from uh, malaria vaccines to developing new enzymes that can eat plastic waste um, to a new uh, antibiotics. Most AI systems today do one or maybe two things well. The soccer robots, for example, can't write up a grocery list or book your travel or drive your car. The ultimate goal is what's called artificial general intelligence, a learning machine that can score on a wide range of talents. Would such a machine be conscious of itself? So that's another great question. We, you know, philosophers haven't really settled on a definition of consciousness yet. But if we mean by sort of self-awareness and uh, these kinds of things, um, you know, I think there is a possibility AIs one day could be. I definitely don't think they are today. Um, but I think, again, this is one of the fascinating scientific things we're going to find out on this journey towards AI. Even unconscious, current AI is superhuman in narrow ways. Back in California, we saw Google engineers teaching skills that robots will practice continuously on their own. Push the blue cube to the blue triangle. They comprehend instructions. Push the yellow hexagon to the yellow heart. And learn to recognize objects. What would you like? How about an apple? How about an apple? On my way, I will bring an apple to you. Vincent Vanuk, senior director of robotics, showed us how Robot 106 was trained on millions of images. I am going to pick up the apple. And can recognize all the items on a crowded countertop. If we can give the robot a diversity of experiences, a lot more different objects in different settings, the robot gets better at every one of them. Now that humans have pulled the forbidden fruit of artificial knowledge, Thank you. we start the genesis of a new humanity. AI can utilize all the information in the world, what no human could ever hold in their head. And I wonder if humanity is diminished by this enormous capability that we're developing. I think the possibilities of AI do not diminish uh, humanity in any way. And in fact, in some ways, I think they actually raise us to even deeper, more profound questions. Google's James Manika sees this moment as an inflection point. I think we're constantly adding these superpowers or capabilities to what humans can do in a way that expands possibilities as opposed to narrow them, I think. So I don't think of it is diminishing humans, but it does raise some really profound questions for us. Who are we? What do we value? Uh, what are we good at? How do we relate with each other? Those become very, very important questions that are constantly going to be, in one case, sense exciting, but perhaps unsettling too. It is an unsettling moment. Critics argue the rush to AI comes too fast, while competitive pressure among giants like Google and startups you've never heard of, is propelling humanity into the future, ready or not. But I think if I take a 10-year outlook, it is so clear to me, we will have some form of 
very capable intelligence that can do amazing things, and we need to adapt as a society for it. Google CEO Sundar Pichai told us society must quickly adapt with regulations for AI in the economy, laws to punish abuse, and treaties among nations to make AI safe for the world. You know, these are deep questions, and you know, we call this alignment. You know, one way we think about how do you develop AI systems that are aligned to human values, and including uh, morality. This is why I think the development of this needs to include not just engineers, but social scientists, ethicists, philosophers, and so on. And I think we have to be very thoughtful. And I think these are all things society needs to figure out as we move along. It's not for a company to decide. We'll end with a note that had never appeared on 60 Minutes, but one in the AI revolution you may be hearing often. The proceeding was created with 100% human content. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You probably know David Byrne as the lead singer and songwriter of Talking Heads, the hugely influential post-punk rock band of the late 1970s and 80s. They broke up more than 30 years ago, but Byrne has been on his own eclectic journey ever since. His artistic innovations have blurred the boundaries of music, theater, and art. He's won an Oscar, a Grammy, and a Tony, toured with salsa singers, collaborated with neuroscientists, made movies, and this summer, his musical about the former First Lady of the Philippines, Imelda Marcos, opens on Broadway. David Byrne is 71, and as we first told you earlier this year, he is as creative, energetic, and unusual as he was when he was 23, an art school dropout just starting to perform on stage with his friends as Talking Heads. The name of this band is Talking Heads. And the name of this song is Psycho Killer. So I wanted to be very matter-of-fact. It's not like, are we having fun tonight? Yeah, there's no, there's none of that. How you all doing? How you all doing? New, New York! York. <laughs> this is one of David Byrne's first performances. It was 1975 at CBGB's, a legendary music club where the Ramones, Patti Smith, and Blondie were also just getting started. Psycho Killer was only the second song David Byrne had ever written, and it was Talking Heads' first hit. 
when you hear it now, what do you think? I'm, I'm glad I did it, but I'm also glad that I didn't stick with that. As my, oh, like, oh, this is working. Let's do more like this. I'm glad that I decided, no, now you have to do things that are a little more original musically. And that's exactly what he did. Along with Tina Weymouth, Chris Franz, and Jerry Harrison, Talking Heads put out eight albums over the next 13 years. They were edgy, groundbreaking, critically acclaimed, and a commercial hit. Melding rock with funk, disco, Afrobeat, and the avant-garde. They'd all studied art in college, and it showed in their music videos, which were in heavy rotation on MTV. Burns' quirky movements and manner got most of the attention. Same as it ever was. Which was not always easy for the introverted singer. Dick Clark tried to ask him about it on American Bandstand in 1979. Are you a shy person? I'd say so. (laughs) It seems contradictory to a lot of people. The introvert who winds up on a stage in front of thousands of people performing and reaching great heights... It does seem contradictory, but in retrospect, it it makes perfect sense. Your way of announcing your existence and communicating your thoughts to people is through performance. And then I could retreat into my shell after that. But I had made myself known to these people and what I was thinking, what I was feeling. So when that's your only option, it's a lifesaver. David Byrne's shyness goes way back. He was born in Scotland, but his family moved to Baltimore when he was eight. His accent was so thick, classmates could barely understand him. He was an outsider, happier making music at home in his basement with a reel-to-reel tape recorder than hanging out with other kids. My discomfort with kind of social situations meant, as often happens, I would focus intently on my drawings or learning to place other people's songs or things like that, and that continued for ages. And you kind of ultra-focused. So that becomes a, well, kind of superpower. Ultra-focus may be a superpower, but it caused problems between Byrne and the band that flared up on tour in 1983. I I became, I think, kind of obsessive about getting that show up and running. I might not have been the most pleasant person to deal with at that point. Demanding. Yes, yes. Byrne commanded center stage, famously wearing this outrageously oversized suit. The show was made into a film by director Jonathan Demme called Stop Making Sense. It's considered one of the greatest concert movies ever. Talking Heads made three more albums, but Byrne was increasingly branching out on his own. As I became more relaxed as a person, started writing different kinds of songs, songs that maybe weren't quite as angst-ridden and Mm -hmm. peculiar, some fans were probably disappointed, Mm. you know, 
We liked the, the really quirky guy, or we liked the guy who was really struggling with himself and really having a hard time. And I thought, why would you wish that on me? <laughs> For your own amusement, right? <laughs> In 1988, he founded a world music label, everyone's everyone's then released an album of Latin songs and wrote music for films, dance companies, and experimental theater. I genuinely started having other kind of musical interests. You'd sort of collaborate with a lot of artists from different genres. Yes, and I thought, I want to do more of that. And by then it was pretty much over. There was never an official announcement, but eventually Byrne made an offhand comment to a reporter that Talking Heads had broken up. He neglected, it seems, to tell the band. Members of the band said that you never actually talked to them and said that the band was over, that they read about it in a newspaper. I don't know if that's the case, but, well, it might be. And I think it is very possible that I did not handle it as best as I could. Just say Byrne never looked back. And he's followed his own beat ever since, no matter how offbeat it may be. Ten years ago, Byrne staged a pop opera in collaboration with Fatboy Slim called Here Lies Love. It's about, of all people, Amelda Marcos, the wife of the former dictator of the Philippines. It's now scheduled to open on Broadway this summer. When he became fascinated with high school color guard teams in 2015, he wound up staging arena shows combining the team's flag-spinning, weapon-tossing, and dance to the pop music of Nelly Furtado and St. Vincent. I thought, oh, this is just going to be highlighting their talent mm -hmm. and putting people together who would never normally be together. And it wasn't until I saw the show and I realized this is not about this at all. What it's really delivering is this message about inclusion. That's what this is about. They kind of revealed it. But isn't that extraordinary that you can start doing something with one thing in mind, and yet it, it, it has a life of its own? I trust what I do and what other people do that way, that it's going to deliver what it wants to say. Mm. Uh, but someone else looking at it could go, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're doing? You don't know why you're doing it? You don't know where it's going to end up? I just kind of trust it. Yeah. He has a small studio in his New York City apartment where he tinkers with lyrics and new ideas, much like he did all those years ago in his parents' basement. First uh, stanza sounds like it might be promising. Do you stop and kind of ruminate on things and come back to it? And yeah, I might see if I get a, like a chorus or something. I might try like a chorus. Uh, Stood by me when darkness fell, my apartment is my friend. That's the key line, so that's got to be pretty good. Byrne is the quintessential New Yorker. He's lived in the city for five decades, and it's not uncommon to see him pedaling around on his bicycle. He is, it seems, always on the move, always exploring. Oh, yeah. His downtown office is lined with books, records, and odd mementos he's picked up here and there. This wonderful wine from Turkmenistan. Hidden amid the clutter, there's a Grammy and his 1988 Oscar for composing the soundtrack for the film The Last Emperor. It's not on the lowest shelf. I mean, David, really. <laughs> Does the Academy know about this? <laughs> you know when you go into somebody's office and they have all their awards? Yes, it's... Uh, all yeah. framed all around them? Or magazine covers. You don't have an ego wall. No. <laughs> yeah. 
His office is where he runs Reasons to be Cheerful. Oh, that could be nice. Another an online magazine highlighting creative solutions to complex problems, from reinventing food banks in Chicago to turning French parking lots into solar farms. So are there reasons to be cheerful? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get up in the morning and start doom scrolling through your phone or your tablet or laptop or whatever, you're going to think, no, 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 no. world's going to hell on a handbasket. But uh, there are people and places, organizations doing things that are really making a difference, finding solutions to things. Who am I? What do I want? How do I work this? That optimism infused a hit Broadway show Byrne created and starred in called American Utopia. They call me Mr. It's actually like the performance branch of Reasons to be Cheerful. This is really about hope and possibility and what, how we can work together as people. He mixed his old songs with new ones. Fern wanted the musicians to be completely untethered, allowing them to move freely around the stage. It was less a Broadway musical, more a raucous revival. There's this amazing feeling when music like that is all around you, when there's a whole group of people who are making the music. It's not just like one soloist or something like that. It's this collective thing that gives it this extra energy. Burns' latest theatrical experience may be his most unusual yet. It's an interactive journey into his past called Theater of the Mind, produced in collaboration with the Denver Center for Performing Arts. Audience members get random name tags and are led on a semi-autobiographical tour of Burns' memories, like this outer-proportion kitchen that makes anyone in it feel like a child. Do this with me. Hold your hand in front of your face. The show is full of surprises the audience takes part in, some of them based on neuroscience experiments. We agreed not to give them away, but they make you question your own perception and perhaps your memories. It is dark in here. You know Theater of the Mind ends in a replica of his parents' attic. Like Burns' life, the show tells a story about how over time our identities are malleable and how we all have the capacity to change. We're never stuck. You can change the story anytime. Isn't that nice? I like that idea that you can change your story. You can change the narrative. It would be a horrible world if people never changed for their entire life. Or they were, they were an angry person or an upset person or a depressed person. And it's like, that's your fate. But that's not true. Do you think you've changed that much? I feel like, yeah, I'm a very different person than I was when I was young. Were you conscious of, of those changes? Sometimes my friends would say, you're really different than what you used to be when I first met you. You're a really different person now. By the way, were they saying that in a nice way or... Was that being yelled at at the top of their lungs? <laughs> it was a nice way. It was like, wow, you've really changed. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. I'm Anderson Cooper. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss true crime anytime you want, anywhere you go with the 48 Hours Podcast. Real crimes. Like a John Grisham novel come to life. Real lives. He pointed a gun to me and said, this is the day you die. And he shot me. Real justice. There's some questions that have to be asked and need to be answered. I'm an innocent man and I hope the whole world can see it now. Catch the latest episodes of 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts.